0: All right, well, we will uh, continue on in our study in 1 Corinthians, we'll be in chapter three today. Chapter three, I've entitled the sermon, A Spirit-Led People. Paul begins to deal with, uh, once again, the issues in the Corinthian church. And he is a, um, a faithful spiritual leader, and as a faithful spiritual leader, he's willing to speak the truth to the people that he shepherds. And uh, I, I like to liken this process to um, what I would call a spiritual fruit inspector. You know, uh, this morning I drove out to Millington and I passed Jones Orchard. And whenever you go to a, flea mar- or a farmer's market or a, a grocery store and you're inspecting the fruit, I never really know what to do. I never really know what to look for, you know, you see people smell it, so I'll pick up like a cantaloupe and smell it like I really have no idea what I'm smelling or, or, or looking for at all. Um, but it just looks like something everybody else is doing, so maybe I'll smell something foul and I won't buy that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that we don't want to get uh, bad fruit, we don't want to get rotten fruit. Matter of fact, uh, something that you need to know about me is, you, you all know that I like bananas, and I am opposed to bruises on bananas, like it disgusts me, um, and I typically cut those off or pull those off, um, because I, I just think it's like moldy bread, like it just, it doesn't go well together. Uh, but the banana itself is not willing, I'm not willing to waste the whole thing, so you just discard the bad spots, and you move on. Some people, some of you, eat those bruises, and you should repent for that, because that's just Gross. Um, but I think that that's a good analogy. I think it's a good spiritual lesson for my role as a spiritual leader. Because my job in your spiritual growth is to help you see the bad spots. Is to help you see where there are bruises and where their uh, sin has evaded, invaded your life. And uh, in, in such a way so that as your leaders, as your elders, we can help you grow. It's not an easy process. It's much easier to pull a banana peel off and look for a bruise. It's a lot harder to look at the, the spots in a person's life and try to guide them towards spiritual growth and maturity. But it's my role as a pastor. It's my role and Adam's role and Stuart's role. This is the responsibility that God has given us over your souls. And this is what Paul is doing in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He is being a faithful spiritual leader. He's not willing to brush over or glance over or sweep under the rug the sins of the people. And what he's trying to do is connect the previous lessons about the Holy Spirit with the prevalent sin in the Corinthian church. Now, we've already dealt with in chapter 1... One particular sin that he is going to bring up again, and that's disunity. But notice what he says in verse 1. He says, "...I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh." For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now on the front end, we need to establish the fact that Paul has called these people his brothers. So he is speaking to those he believes to be Christians. That is the disclaimer on the front end. He says to them throughout this passage, like in chapter 1, he reminds them that they were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Down in chapter 3, verse 16, he reminds them, do you not know that God, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Folks, the Holy Spirit does not dwell in unbelievers. So we need to understand on the front end that Paul is dealing with believers in the church. But these believers have fallen into grave sin as a congregation. They have allowed the culture around them to so infiltrate their lives that they have become divisive and fragmentary in the church. And so he calls them out. And what he's doing is he's revealing to us the reality of our spiritual lives, that even when we are regenerate, even when we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we still fight with our flesh. We still fight with the old man, as Paul calls it. In Romans chapter 6, a famous passage that you know, he writes, We know that our old self was crucified with Him, meaning Jesus. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So the old self, the person that you were in Adam, was crucified with Christ. That's the symbolism of baptism. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're raised to walk in newness of life. That life is done. You are no longer a slave to sin. But you will wrestle with your old life as you still live in this earth. Those still uh, sins that you struggled with, you are no longer enslaved to them. You have victory over them. But they will constantly nag you and prod you as the Holy Spirit transforms you day by day in His power and strength. And so I title this message, Spirit-Led People, because Paul is really teaching us about what it means to be believers led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. He makes that distinction in verse 1. He says, I could not address you as people of the Spirit, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So what does it mean to be people of the Spirit? It means that we fight our flesh. We fight it. We stand to seek holiness and godliness. We, die, we, we seek to, to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Our desire is to honor Him above all things. And the process that we have to go through is turning away from our flesh and our sin and turning back to the things of God. And particularly, Paul is dealing with these uh, people in the church and he's reminding them that you should be growing spiritually, but you're not growing spiritually because you are allowing sin to remain in your midst. Matter of fact, in chapter 5, he's much more clear and much more upfront with the evil that exists in their body. We told you on the front end that Paul is not just going to deal with one issue. He's going to deal with many issues in the Corinthian church. And in chapter 5, he's very direct and he says, Purge the evil person from among you. That sounds familiar, right? <clears throat> sounds like what Jesus said, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Because a believer that's striving for holiness, that's been so changed by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit... There's, we're so changed and we're so different that the very sin that still not, uh, nags our, our, our new life in Christ, we should put it away. Matter of fact, he says this in Ephesians chapter 4. As we fight the flesh, we are to put off our old self. Put off your old self, he says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. As we fight the flesh, as we're seeking to be led by the Spirit, we're identifying the very things in our lives that continually nag us from our old lives that we are seeking to get rid of. We are seeking to put them to death. This is the process of fighting our flesh, of living a life of repentance. And when Paul says this in Ephesians, to, to put these things off, he means literally to derobe yourself. To take the things off that do not reflect the godliness, but reflect the reflect worldliness. And so Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is fight your flesh. You should be growing with solid food, but instead you are being fed with milk. You are mere infants because you are not ready for it. So as we fight our flesh, we will grow spiritually. As we allow sin to remain, Paul tells us that we will be crippled in our spiritual growth. If you wonder, church, if you wonder, friend, why you're not growing spiritually, maybe it's because there is a habitual residing sin or sins in your life that you refuse to let go of. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you and He has led you to understand through the, the Holy Scriptures that this sin is wrong. And you are clinging to these things. And let me warn you, friend, those who live in sin, the Bible tells us in 1 John, do not belong to God. If you live in sin, if you refuse to let it go, you cannot belong to God. So let me warn you and encourage you to evaluate your own life and heart, to cut out the bad spots of your life and fight the flesh. Why? Because you have been changed. Again, looking in verse chapter 3 of verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. The Holy Spirit literally possesses our being. So that we live in this world with the Holy Spirit. Guiding us and directing us. Causing us to be convicted over our sin. Causing us to see the scriptures as we read last week. That's why the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Because they are foolishness to him. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But when we have such a transformative change by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, we will seek to be a pure and holy temple. Therefore, we will be fighting the flesh and we will be led by the Spirit. Let me continue that passage in Ephesians 4. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, Christ changes our hearts. And the process of our minds are being changed day by day in the understanding of the Word of God and the hiding it in our hearts that we will not sin against the Lord. Fighting sin and the temptations of the devil through the Word of God by renewing our minds. This is the process that we go through in sanctification. So we must fight. And by fighting our flesh, we are being led by our uh, by our spirit, the Holy Spirit, who drives us to be holy. And being led by the Spirit is used in uh, different ways. It's 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 phrased in different ways. As a matter of fact, if you hold your place here and, and flip over to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter five, it's the famous passages about the fruits of the Spirit. Notice that Paul says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for though these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes on to lists. These works of the, of, of the flesh and then the fruits of the Spirit. And he's using these words interchangeably, walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, living by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means the day by day surrender of our lives to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit according to the holiness of God, the Word of God, in which, in, which instructs us. So that we might honor Christ. So you and I are called then to be led by the Spirit to fight the flesh. By turning away from those sins that bother us, that nag us. And allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to guide us to live in holiness. And how do we do that? We, we live in such a way that we renew our minds according to the Word of God. So we understand how the Spirit will lead us what we're not saying is that the spirit is this some um, emotional roller coaster that, that is constantly guiding us and directing us to a, to this feeling or that feeling no the spirit of god moves and works through the word of god to renew our minds so that we might know how we might live and act in order to honor christ so paul brings all these things up back in Cl- in corinthians chapter 3 Because he's calling them to be spiritual people, but yet he's rebuking them for being people of the flesh. And in doing so, he isolates and identifies the the core problem in their sin. He says, You are jealous and you have contention among you. That's their issue, that's the flesh that they refuse to fight. The word jealousy there actually means zealous or having zeal. But on the positive side, we can be passionate and emboldened to do great things for good reasons. But jealousy can also mean strife and and envy, a zeal to desire the things that we don't have, to desire positions that we don't attain or don't possess. And for the Corinthians, they have allowed the culture to so infiltrate them that they had boosted these leaders up, Paul and Apollos, and it had caused division over them, or in, in them, and among their congregation. And therefore, Paul calls them to realize their sin, to seek unity, because unity is a spirit led act. God calls us to be people that are unified because being unified is Spirit-led. This is what the Spirit does in us. He unifies us. He brings us together. We are literally, as I said last week, He is the applicator of the work of Christ. What's happened? No matter what race or culture or socioeconomic status, the Holy Spirit has brought us together. He has unified us in Christ. He is a unifying work that the Holy Spirit does for us. But when we are of the flesh, we allow our divisions and our differences to divide us. And in dividing us, we allow Satan a foothold into the work of the church in the proclamation of the gospel in the expanse of God's kingdom. And it cripples it because of our disunity. Maybe it's competitiveness. Maybe it's jealousy and, and strife like in Corinth. Regardless, Paul is calling them to fight their flesh and be unified in the Spirit. So unity in the church is a Spirit-led act. But secondly, humility in the church is Spirit-led. Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants with, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Right there, Paul is changing the, the definition of the type of respect and, and uh worship, almost idol worship, that these people had for Paul and Apollos. Instead, he's saying, listen, you have your worship in the wrong direction. The truth of the matter is, who is Paul and Apollos? They're only the men that God assigned and led to go and do what he assigned them to do. Think about it. Paul was a hater of the Christian church until God savingly and dramatically transformed his life. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, led Paul to different areas of the world where he would preach the gospel and make disciples. And it just so happens that he ends up in Corinth. And there in Corinth, by not a coincidence, but the providence of God, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And there disciples them and ministers with them for a few years in Corinth, and then they leave. And Aquila and Priscilla go with Paul to Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla encounter Apollos. And God has literally sovereignly ordained these steps so that now Apollos is being discipled by Aquila and Priscilla, who is discipled by Paul, all for the purpose of the growth of the Corinthian church. And so Apollos goes back to Corinth. He leads the ministry there after Paul's ministry. Both men assigned to such a task by the sovereign plan and purpose of God, not in their own wisdom, not in their own strength. Therefore, and we, as we think about humility in the church, we think about God's sovereignty humbles us. All throughout this passage, In verses 5 through 9, we're reminded that it's not about Apollos. It's not about Paul. It's not about Nathan or Adam or Stuart. It's all in the way in which God sovereignly ordains His purposes and plans and uses His assigned people to do His work. Look at the participation in verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God's the one that's responsible for the work in the church. Therefore, Paul doesn't need to be worshipped and idolized. Apollos doesn't need to be worshipped and idolized. The glory goes to God alone. And when we consider that, that the sovereign God of the universe so moves and works in the world, allowing us to understand it, to see it, understanding the processes that we are brought to salvation in Christ that we are used for His glory. God's sovereignty should humble us. And by the way, this is a a great church growth strategy, by the way. Thinking about the faithfulness of believers in Jesus Christ, not resting upon their own wisdom and their own humor and their own entertainment value. Paul's merely saying, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And when I do... Someone might follow me in ministry. Someone may add to the foundation that was laid. But in the end, God is the one that gives the growth. So in whatever ministry function or participation you participate in, serving and and, and ministering among people, and you want to see the God move and work, you trust that God will bring the growth in His own sovereign plan. And when we consider that, It humbles us. Paul wants the Corinthians to be humbled by God's sovereignty. But secondly, our kingdom participation humbles us. In those same verses, we should be humbled by the fact that God allows us to do anything for His glory. We are broken vessels, broken cisterns that God has chosen to transform and use. We're not eloquent, I'm not eloquent. I'm rough around the edges. Adam sure is rough around the edges. And yet God uses us in in this humbling way so that we might be able to deliver a life-changing message to people. There's nothing special about us. And yet God allows us to be a part of such a great work. And that doesn't make us boast. It doesn't make us arrogant. It humbles us that you, God, would allow a a fool such as myself to stand up here and preach God's Word. You know, I think about the mountain at Matthew chapter 28. The disciples are standing on the mountain and they have gone to meet Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead after giving His life as a ransom for many. He defeats sin and death by rising from the grave. He appears to them for 40 days and then He ascends to heaven. And on that mountain, He's standing before these men who just 40 days ago had deserted Him. They had deserted Him at His crucifixion. They had deserted Him and left Him alone. And yet here they are standing before Him before He ascends into heaven and He is commissioning them to take the kingdom baton and continue the work where He left off. And I think, man, to be in the minds of those disciples at that moment. Lord, how could you call me to do such a thing? You remember the passage, right? Go and make therefore disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, it's really not about you. You get to participate in these things, and you be faithful and, and, and uh participate well in the in the the task that i've sent you go make disciples go to all the nations make sure you are baptizing them in the name of the father son and spirit teach them to observe all that i've commanded you but by the way it's not about you it's about me because i'm going to be with you i'm going to empower you i'm going to be the one that brings about its good purposes And so if we understand Paul's message to the Corinthians, he wants them to be a humble people. And humility comes as the Spirit leads us to consider the sovereignty of God and the way in which God uses us in His kingdom growth. And finally, our eternal reward humbles us. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul reminds them that the Holy Spirit's work in them is is the hope that they need in a world that will not reward them for their work. Participating in the labor of the gospel is an unrewarding work in the earthly sense. You are going to be underappreciated. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be persecuted. And if you completely understand the reason in which you do such a thing because of a faithful and loving God who has set His love upon you providentially and sovereignly and you understand the blessings that, and reward that you reap in the end, in eternity, then you will be humbled and be thankful for what God has blessed us with. Those rewards that await us in, our, in an eternal kingdom We experience them in small doses here. For example, the love and the community that we have as a church. The dependence that we have on each other. That is a shadow. That is a fragmentary experience of what we will experience in eternity with the community of the saints. The joy that we have in Christ is always wrestling with the hopelessness of this world. But the joy that we find in Christ here is only a fraction of what eternal joy will experience at His feet. And so Paul reminds them that their faithfulness, their labor in the gospel will be rewarded in the inheritance of the saints when Christ Jesus comes again. He will provide such a reward, such a salvation in His name. So they will find contentment in the promises of those riches. The promises of Christ Himself which they will experience in heaven for all eternity. They will enjoy the grace that they have now, but they will experience that full grace when they have escaped the sinful world for good. And therefore, that reward is the very thing that motivates us to be faithful and to be Spirit-led. If we are of the flesh, we are disunified. If we are of the flesh, we are arrogant. If we are of the flesh, we want some form of reward for the things that we do. But as we are being led by the Spirit, we are seeking to be humbled by, and live in a humbled state that reflects the work of the Holy Spirit in us, showing us that we are truly saved. And so we take ourselves back to the end of chapter 2, where Paul says these words, but we have the mind of Christ. And so you ask yourself, well, what is the mind of Christ? It's a mind that is humble. As Philippians chapter 2 tells us. Paul tells us then, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. How did Christ Jesus show us humility? How can we have His mind? He blesses us with His mind through the renewing of our minds in the Holy Spirit. He was... In the form of God, but did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul explains the very mind of Christ in a a humble state, stepping away from the glories of heaven, Showing us what it means to to live a humble life. And he makes it very practical. In verses 2 of Philippians 2 or verse 3 do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. I feel like Paul should have just read Philippians to the Corinthians. This was the problem. They weren't having the mind of Christ. They were allowing sin to dwell in their midst. They weren't fighting the flesh and living by the Spirit. And so Paul in chapter 3 and chapter 4 will remind them, will challenge them of what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit being led by Him in faithfulness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these words today, God, that we would understand and know our lives as believers in Jesus. And Father, we are all susceptible to having sin creep into our lives, to giving in to temptation and allowing it to have a temporary hold on our lives. God, help us by your power of your Holy Spirit to fight the flesh as we wrestle with this day by day not just with the world outside but the temptations inside help us to be faithful to turn from our sin guided by the Holy Spirit leaving, leave, le- leading a holy and godly life God we know you have given us such power because you, your son Jesus Christ rose from the dead defeating sin and death. And because of that, we know that the power of sin is defeated, that we are no longer slaves to such sin. We can have victory in Him. Thank You for this hope, Father. And Father, for those here today that don't know You, they are not possessed by the Holy Spirit because they are possessed by their own selfish desires, their own sin nature. They have never truly trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we pray today that you would save them. Like Lydia at the water bank, as the gospel message was proclaimed, Father, we pray you would open their hearts to believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Not their works, not their previous religious experience, but they would trust in Jesus to save them from their sins, to be the Lord of their life, God, we we plead and beg that you would do such a work today. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to our time of uh, the Lord's Supper. And um, Nathan's message is a great segue, like everything that he said. Uh, leads into this time for us to examine our hearts and to uh, ask the spirit of the Lord to reveal to us those things that which we should put off and uh, plead for him to renew